I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Earlier this spring, I had an actual front row seat front row seat to the Philadelphia Orchestra's performance of Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. It's a piece of music I never tire of hearing. The experience is so visceral, it bypasses my brain, goes straight to my gut. I feel it in every part of my body. Well, that seat put me 10 feet away from violinist David Kim, the orchestra's concertmaster, and I got to see up close how he connected with the score, the conductor, the other musicians, and the audience. It was inspiring. It also got me thinking about the power of performance to create a communal experience and to pull an audience into a shared story, whether music or theater or dance. So today on The Connection, the creative process. Joining us is the aforementioned David Kim, who has been with the orchestra since 1999. David, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks, Marty. Also with us, Jennifer Childs. She is the co-founder, artistic director of 1812 Productions, the country's only professional theater company dedicated to comedy. I should add, she is also the creator of the Radio Times hate mail performance piece, (laughs) which we have mined relentlessly over the years. Jennifer Childs, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you, Marty. And also with us is Angel Correa. He became artistic director of Philadelphia Ballet, former Pennsylvania ballet in the 2014-2015 season. Prior to that appointment, he was principal dancer with American Ballet Theater and Angel Correa. Nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. David, I do want to begin with you because I began describing what it was like to be in the audience and to be so close to you as you were performing this piece of music. Now, I don't know if that was like, you know, the most rousing performance you have ever done, but I'm just curious about when you're in the middle of an intense piece of music like that and you've got the audience in your hands, in your fingertips, at least it felt that way to me, what was that like for you? Well, I have to say that every single performance is a little different mm-hmm. in some way. It's very mysterious. And just when you think you can kind of predict how it's going to go on a particular given performance, it's different. And... Um, but, of course, repertoire has so much to do with it. Uh, repertoire has to do with it, and the Rite of Spring is a hair-raising work. I can only imagine. Visceral, <laughs> right. and, uh, and then, of course, the conductor has so much to do with it as an orchestral musician. So, and the yeah. conductor that day, actually, uh, Yannick was sick, so he was kind of pulled onto the stage, and one could feel the orchestra sort of saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to all do this together. Absolutely. Um, our young, uh, one of our young uh, conducting fellows, Austin Chanu, just stepped in. It was kind of one of those once-in-a-lifetime moments when you step in as a young conductor and uh, you step in for one of the world's leading conductors um, and then with the Philadelphia Orchestra, one of the great orchestras in the world, conducting one of the most difficult pieces. It was just everything lined up and he just hit it out of the park mm-hmm. and he's a very close friend. I feel like I mentor him in some ways. Uh. And in the days leading up, when we thought it might happen, we sat next to each other on the train to Carnegie, and I took pictures of him studying, and, you know, just kind of, I just had a feeling something special was going to happen, and sure enough, he just absolutely hit it out of the park. The show is called The Connection, and we've done a number of different topics. We've talked about happiness and siblings and a good apology. We did a show about depression, trauma, and resilience, and I did want to focus on performance and creativity. And for Jen, how do you, do you have a certain 
idea when you think of performance, especially when it comes to comedy? Mm -hmm. How important, I guess, the audience, the audience is for comedy. I, I, the audience is vital. You know, we always say if a joke gets told in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, is it funny? And the answer is no, <laughs> it's not. not. It's right. not. And over the course of the pandemic, trying to do comedy via Zoom was just was brutal. Um, I think in theater and probably in all the arts, I always say that the audience is the final character, and especially in comedy. I feel like it is because we're asking them to make noise. And so the music of the piece is never really fully there until that character is there so that I say something and then there's a response or no response, and that changes how I'm going to say the next thing. Um, yeah, I, vitally important. And, and I suppose by response you mean laughter. Yeah, well, sometimes laughter and sometimes, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes yes, not laughter. Sometimes <laughs> not laughter or, you know, or sometimes groans or I always say it's a it's a conversation with the audience, especially um, we do a show every year called This is the Week That Is, which is a political humor show, which is very presentational and uh, very much with the audience. And it, it is. It's a conversation. And we'll say something and it may get a groan or it may get a boo or it may get a rousing laugh or it may get silence. That's what that conversation is all about. And for you, Angel, I mean, talking about ballet, different from comedy, right? Do you want yeah. groans and laughter and eye <laughs> rolls or whatever? We, we encourage that. And <laughs> people think that, oh, we should not disturb the, the, the piece. We should not disturb the ballet. But um, I think it's very important. It, 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 an audience can change a performance. And, and I think that, uh, as Jennifer was mentioning, um, the, the reaction of the audience makes an, a huge impact in the dancing. You can, you can see a performance going in a certain direction, and if the audience are reacting in a certain way. Uh, all of that is impacting and is going up on stage. I always say the dancers, you have to uh, gather all the energy that you that you have in your dancing and, and make the audience be part of that. And once you get the audience on stage and make them be part of what you're doing um, then it becomes like a like a third person like a third dancer like an, an extra part of the part of the show that is uh, vital how can you tell though if the audience is with you is connecting with what you do if they're not laughing or groaning I think that it creates some sort of an atmosphere there is something like a, 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 a sounding silence that that is really hard to describe that that you feel that that you could hear a, a, a pin drop and they're and paying attention they're paying attention yeah which is today with the with the cell phone and, and Netflix <laughs> and all that it's really hard to get but um, once you get that you have them in the palm of your hand you can do whatever you want and they will follow you anywhere you go and I think that that's when that that performance is, is magical and we always aim for magical performances mm -hmm. David, I was reading recently with the Philadelphia Orchestra that uh, Yannick actually twice stopped the performance because two times someone's cell phone went off. We could do an old, probably a whole hour on things like this, but what does that do to the performance when all of a sudden you just, you know, you have to put the brakes on? Well, I mean, it's almost inevitable nowadays. Everybody has a phone in their pocket, and... Um, I, I believe that one of the things we might think about incorporating into the concert hall, into the theater, is a little, maybe even a little film clip at the beginning of the, at the top of show, telling people how to do it. How I mean, to literally, it. how to turn their phone off. Yeah, I look at my elderly parents and they forget what I told them yesterday. Like, oh, mom, you just want to put this down here and then press this little airplane guy and... 
Uh, I think some people just leave their phones on all the time, and so they don't, they're not really familiar with this kind of muting it or turning it off or anything. So um, I would love to see that incorporated into either Playbill or on the stage. I mean, kind of like when you go to the movies now. They, t- they give you all sorts of instructions and make you feel very ashamed of yourself if, Absolutely. You, if you were to do that. Did you want to add something, Jen? No, I just uh, I, I can't even imagine. I know how disruptive it is in theater, and I cannot imagine in the middle of a piece of music how what that what that would do. Yeah, Jen, and it's... And slamming un- on the brakes. Yeah. Uncanny how it always happens in the quiet moment. Yes. yes. Just suddenly in this magical moment that we're having and then suddenly the mm-hmm. the yeah. ringtones that everybody's so familiar We with. actually yeah, have a passage on the Nutcracker that um, we get really upset because it's, it's only music, which is beautiful. It's a scenery change um, and the dancers are changing costumes mm-hmm. and um, it's really sad that at that moment you see lights coming up, yeah. like thousands of yeah. them in the theater because oh. people are like going into their phones and looking at messages or looking oh, into really? Instagram oh. which is, it, it, it really kind of upsets me. It's like, yeah. okay, this beautiful piece of music from Tchaikovsky and yeah. everyone is looking into their phones. So, uh, yeah, I agree with David. I think that maybe we should do that or just put some, like, uh, some sort of machinery that <laughs> will en- enable the... the, the How a police force? Yeah, <laughs> yeah something so like that. A little, force, like a little shock. You get a little <laughs> shock. No, I think it's also interesting, you know, we talk about how aware we are of the audience. I sometimes don't know if the audience knows how aware we are of them and that idea mm-hmm. of standing up on stage and watching people's faces illuminated by their phones mm-hmm. to start texting is, is mm-hmm. just devastating, devastating. Yeah. yes absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely I wanted to quote something from actually Patty Lupone talked about before I start a show I always look out in the audience because I want to see who I am playing to I look them in the eye I'm in a musical I'm a I'm, I'm a, it's presentational theater I deliver I deliver lines to people I look in the corner of my eye and decide who am I gonna give this kiss off to mm-hmm. uh, a particular line or not David do you do that I mean do you find someone in the audience to play to uh, I even have, uh, before I walk on stage when I'm in the wings, I always l- look out into the hall, maybe a minute or two before I uh, go on stage to tune the orchestra, and I look to see how big the house is for that particular concert, and I also look to see familiar faces and friends, and there's always some kind of touching moment like, oh, there's my, I don't know, my urologist. Or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And uh, it's just, and then when I walk on stage, it, yeah. yeah, I always give a wink or a little wave. And I've been told by some colleagues in years past, oh, that's unprofessional. I'm like, fine, I'll be unprofessional, <laughs> but I need to make co- connections with people. It's all about relationships and warmth. And connection. And connection. How about for you, Angel? I'm thinking as a dancer, but now also as as artistic director. Well, when I, as a dancer, I actually it made me nervous because I there were people that I knew and I I, don't, I didn't want to disappoint them. So actually, I I didn't want to know. Mm-hmm. I kind of like I said, okay, don't tell me if someone is here in the audience. I just want to play for everyone, and and that sort of calmed me down. Uh, now, as an artistic director, I actually get more nervous than when I was a dancer because when I was a dancer, I was in control and I knew what I was going to do but now uh, you work with all these fabulous dancers um, through weeks before they get prepared and then when they go on stage you have to let it go mm-hmm. it's their their moment it's their time and 
I find myself in the back of the house just dancing with them and just moving around. And I never see there's a seat for the artistic director. I never sit in it. Oh. I always say, just sell that seat because I'm just in the back dancing with them and I'm sweating. And at the end, I, I just go, well, like I dance a whole evening. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's very different. It's a very different time for me. And, and Jen, about a minute before our first break, you're, you're both a solo performer but also part of an ensemble. Yeah, and and I absolutely hear you. When I direct a show, I never, ever sit. I can't. I pace. I, and I am mouthing the words uh, with everyone and watching eagerly as to what the response is going to be. And, um, yeah, I sometimes feel like I can't sit in the house because I bring too much anxious energy in oh. there. But but do you feel, do you feel I can read this audience? Like I, if someone comes in or the audience is sitting in their seat, yeah. you say, oh, okay, this is a, this there's kind of audience? Yeah, there's definitely a vibe. There's definitely, a, depending on a lot of times, it's how talkative are they? What's the, what's the energy that they're bringing into the room as they're sitting and waiting? Are they quiet? Are they, uh, you know, a bullion? Are they getting up and saying hello to friends, et cetera? Um, and sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, we're going to take a very short break and get back to our conversation uh, with our three guests. That's Jennifer Childs, co-founder and artistic director of 1812 Productions here in Philadelphia. David Kim has been uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra's concert master since 1999. Angel Correa became artistic director of Philadelphia Ballet in the 2014-2015 season. Much more to talk about after this very short break. To stay with us, we'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, again talking with David Kim, violinist and concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. You can see the orchestras next week at The Man on the 18th and 19th with two programs conducted by Yannick Nézé-Séga. Jennifer Childs here as well, and their latest production of uh, 1812 Productions is The Play That Goes Wrong, and it runs through May 21st. Where, where's, where's this being performed? Plays and Plays. At Plays and Players, and Angel Correa, again, Artistic Director of Philadelphia Ballet, and their production of Coppelia, choreographed by Angel Correa, runs uh, through this weekend at the Academy of Music. And speaking of Angel Correa, uh, when he was with the American Ballet Theater, where he quickly rose to the rank of principal dancer, he appeared on Sesame Street back in 1998 to dance with some friends who happened to be letters of the alphabet. Let's give it a quick listen. Yeah, yeah, Angel is a dancer. He dances with American Ballet Theater. That's right, that's right. And today, he's going to dance with some dancers that he's never danced with before. That's right, with 26 of them. 26? Elmo can't wait to see this. <laughs> then let's begin. Okay, here is Angel Correa dancing with... 26 friends! <laughs> We obviously can't do the rest of it yeah. on the we'll radio, but nonetheless, I mean, what a treat, right, on how to dance. It, it was. It was a special, very, very special day for me. Um, I, I mean, I was so lucky to, throughout my career, to have experiences like this, mm -hmm. and, and I, I could never imagine that something like this it was going to happen, but it did. So. You 
gave up being a dancer, I guess retired is probably the more appropriate yeah. word rather than <laughs> gave up, retired yeah. from being a dancer. Mm-hmm. What did you what did you have to grapple with, if anything, to make that decision? I think that uh, as a dancer, when you uh, hit a cer- certain age, your body's telling you. It's starting to tell you, okay, you can do this jump. You can do this ballet. You can perform. Like one of the ballets that uh, first you have to give up is, for example, Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another very famous ballet by George Balanchine called Theme and Variations that is another one that you have to you give up. So You, you cannot can't do, do it. it? Well, you could do it, but it, would, it wouldn't look pretty. So, <laughs> um, yeah, you start giving up some of the ballets, and then eventually your body just says, okay, enough. Mm-hmm. You have to give you know leave the space for a younger younger generation dance is a very brutal uh, profession that uh, when you hit a certain age it's just you can't do it any longer yeah so. i mean david i don't think of being a violinist as as brutal let's say as as being as doing ballet but nonetheless you know there's a lot of physicality to what you have to do absolutely maybe it's a little bit on a different scale but i think we're all we all consider ourselves athletes in some way. Mm -hmm. And so as we age, I think there's a certain kind of relearning, adjusting, always going on. And Mm -hmm. that's where the practice comes in. And as opposed to being young and invincible, we kind of become a little bit more clever and we can somehow work it as we age and our bodies change almost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I would think you've been playing for, I think, is it 50 years or 60 years? All, uh, 57 years. 57 years, because yeah. you began when you were, what, three? Three. Three wow. years old. Gosh. I know, gosh. Um, <laughs> but you must know You must know every piece of classical music. No, actually, no? Uh, I know a lot of the violin repertoire, and of course, now through my experience with the great Philadelphia Orchestra, a lot of the symphonic repertoire, but... You know, um, it's just a combination, uh, season after season, of old war horses and concertos that everybody knows, Rachmaninoff and Chopin and Brahms. But then music of new composers, of living composers, young composers. So it's a nice kind of uh, refreshing uh, refreshing kind of rotation of music. Are there aches and pains, though, with coming, coming with being a violinist? Well, there can be. The idea is to hopefully cut them off before they really become a problem. But uh, I've only had one or two moments in my career. I'm very fortunate. I'm uh, just blessed with a body that does not have too many aches and pains. And so um, that's also why I'm constantly trying to exercise and really um, also not only physically stay refreshed, but mentally refreshed because there's such a connection there. And when uh, you're mentally stressed out and uptight, then it seems to kind of manifest itself physically somehow. Mm -hmm. And you're a golfer, too. Does that help your... It does mentally, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to be outside for several hours with friends and, you know, just uh, it's so nice to just kind of be away from the pressure. And um, I just love... I'm sure Jennifer and Angel know exactly what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, but sometimes just doing the mundane things in life is so refreshing because you're not being judged, you're not being uh, critiqued. Uh, so just doing laundry or doing the dishes or raking leaves or something just that there's immediate satisfaction is so nice. Yeah. And Jennifer, for you as a member of the theater, how do you stay in shape, so to speak? Um, well, First of all, physically, I do a lot of yoga and biking and things like that. And that also helps with that kind of mental framework. But I I so resonate with what you said. I think it's because it's not just the physical. It's 
and not even just the mental, it's the emotional energy that you're asked to expend when you're up there, kind of just giving yourself to an audience. Um, and hopefully they give energy back, and that's a part of what is so joyous. But it, like I always say, I love doing crossword puzzles because they're complete and in a profession where everything is kind of always in process, could always be better, could always be different. Here's something that's like every square is filled in. Mm-hmm. Nobody has looked at me. I, and so, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, all of that. Do you have stage fright? Do you get stage fright? Sometimes, sometimes. Sometimes it's based on who's in the audience um, and – in some of that, some of that is more uh, nervous energy. If I've been away for it from a, for a while, uh, and if I have a lot of lines to learn, that's the other element mm-hmm. of uh, aging bodies is aging um, brains. brains. <laughs> Indeed, searching for yes, the word, exactly. right? Searching for their brain, um, and and I have had moments where I've been on stage and and come up against a blank wall and. And that's pretty terrifying, but that's also where practice comes in, and that's where years and years of improv training and things like that kind of are helpful. So you can muscle through yes. that moment yeah. where there's nothing yes. there, literally nothing there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's scary. Yeah, it is scary. It is scary when there's a big blank spot in the middle of a monologue. You know, how about practice for you and for your dancers? I mean, how? How rigorous is that? Well, uh, we actually start at 9.30 in the morning, and um, we have a morning class, so the, the body gets uh, prepared for the rehearsal, the, the daily rehearsal uh, time. And then we finish at 6 o'clock with an hour, sometimes, if we're lucky, an hour wow. for lunch. Um, so that's that's the every day when we have performances. Then the, the show starts at 7.30, and then we go until 10.30 or 11. Um, yes, it's a lot of a lot of repetition and a lot of uh, going through the same motions over and over and over. So um, you can get nervous, you can have a moment, moment of panic or a moment, but because th- there's a lot of body um, uh, um, memory mm-hmm. that that it goes with it. That sometimes you you can't even just listen to the music and let yourself go, and the the music will tell you what comes next. So yeah. there's a lot of um, yeah, like uh, body body memory that that goes on with with dancing. I mean, is that beyond thinking then? I mean, if, when you're in that moment, are you thinking, I must move my arm? No, I think so? that it goes together with the music. That's why it's so hard to dance without music. It's ah. so hard when you have a, a silence or or a, or a, a, a moment of, of, of dancing without music because then, then is when you have to really think what, what the steps are. But um, I think that muscle memory, it plays a, a big part in, in, in ballet. David, we, we ran across a, a, a clip that uh, back in 2018 where you're talking about some of your details of, of practice and you talk about going over things super slowly. Uh, you talk about being very efficient and very practical. You described, um, if I do this seven times very slowly, then chances are if I've mastered this difficult passage. And you also talk about kind of being a neatnik when it comes to some of it's this stuff. It's called OCD. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's give it a listen and then we'll talk about it. If I'm practicing, say, in our dining room, on our dining room table, I will not have a box of cereal sitting here, an empty bowl of from my cereal sitting there, half a cup of coffee. I will clean. This is partly my obsess- obsessive compulsive disorder too, my OCD. I will make sure that everything around me is neat, clean, tidy. I will make a list 
of what I'm going to accomplish in how many minutes, and then then I start practicing. Interesting. I mean, that everything has to be kind of, for you, mm-hmm. sort of neat and ordered in order for you to, what, have the mental space to practice? Yeah, I mean... Um, I'm just trying to be efficient, uh, as we all are nowadays. We're all so busy and overscheduled and everything. So uh, I don't have kind of unlimited time to practice. Uh, I might have to leave for the hall or I might have to go and pick up my kid. You know, just mm-hmm. there's so much going on in our lives. And so I'm trying to be very mindful of good, efficient practice and get it done in the minimal time that I can. And uh, then it just feels like, okay, I had a achievable goal and I did it mm-hmm. I'm done mm-hmm. on to the next thing and reward myself <laughs> well I was going to say wine. <laughs> <laughs> which leads to the question I mean do you like practicing do you enjoy it or or you've just figured out how to make it work no for you? I really I dislike it you dislike it I dislike it and as my wonderful colleagues here <laughs> will attest you know we spend our entire lives practicing yeah. and um, I mean you left Radio Times after an incredible career, incredible run, and I'm I'm kind of starting to see that in the on the horizon for myself when I leave the orchestra someday. What is that going to look like? But yeah. I look forward not to having that kind of pressure on sitting on my shoulder, like oh, I got to prepare for next week and the week after. And I mean, are you looking at the clock saying, "Oh, good, I only have five more minutes to go"? Or? <laughs> absolutely. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's, uh, that's so. I wonder, are you unique that way? You think? Are are there musicians who love to practice? I think some do, but um, you know, I I just know myself as right. we all need to have self-awareness, and um, I really try to enlist the help of my family as well. My mm-hmm. girls are in, in college and all that, but when they're home, and they know exactly what's going on. If I'm out, out in the back and picking up leaves or something, they say, oh, you're procrastinating again. <laughs> they know right away. And um, It's so that obvious, right? <laughs> I, I say, okay, please make sure that my practicing is done by yeah. Four thirty, yeah. and then let's go to Starbucks after that. <laughs> you know, that's the re- reward. Well, Jan, I'm, I'm thinking about learning lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the kind of practice that has to come with comedy or almost anything yeah. that you do as as an actor. Yeah, I think it's 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 different depending on which role I'm in. If I'm if I'm performing and I have to learn lines, uh, yes, sometimes that is a that is a slog. It is. I enjoy it when I'm in the room with other people. I mean, a, a part of what rehearsal is, and, and you know, mm-hmm. and that's probably practice is different when it's with the full group. That's probably a little bit more enjoyable. Um, that's really exciting because then I'm, we're finding connections between all of the things that we're doing and how we perform together. Um, but yes, learning lines by rote. Every actor has their own way of doing it, yeah. and you know, recording and things like that. What do you do? What do you um, do? I just it depends on the piece a lot of times if it is uh if it's uh dialogue with other people I count on being in the rehearsal room and having it be just by by rote yeah. um but there have been times where I've had to sit down and you know cover it with one line I'm going to the store today okay I'm going to the store today I'm going to the store today this is how I go I'm going to the store you know just repetition and wow wow yeah. 
I would think with ballet, there's I mean, a certain amount of repetition you have to master. Certainly, especially right? if you're dancing with a ballerina or with, mm-hmm. with a, your partner, you definitely have to have a, a, a great connection with them because, uh, you know, it could be really dangerous. If, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're doing a step and the, the female dancer or the male dancer is not ready, then you can hurt yourself. So, yeah, it's a lot of repetition and a lot of uh, concentration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a... Um, there's not a, there's not a moment for relax mm-hmm. for for relax. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you. I kept running across this story about you as a young child. I think you were a toddler. Actually, you grew up in Spain, mm-hmm. and uh, your mother would tell the story that uh, what three year old Angel Correa I had a pacifier in my, in my mouth, and I used to dance like John Travolta. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it, dancing was always a way for me to express myself. I Why? think that a, a lot of the times, although I speak a lot, um, it's really hard for me to express how I feel. Uh, and dancing was a way for me to to say who I was and mm-hmm. to to express how I felt. So, yeah. well, I'd love to see a picture of three year old Angel Correa with a pacifier in his mouth during there's one, there's one, Saturday Night Live or Saturday Night Fever, yeah. I should say, right? <laughs> yeah, Definitely. No, and um, my sisters, they actually start dancing before I did um, uh-huh. because it was, you know, a, a boy dancing in Spain. It was not mm-hmm. um, something that you see. Um, and my sisters, they started ballet dance, and I started with karate. And uh, one of the other kids in the in the class got his nose broken and started to scream and, and cry. And I was like, I was only four years old, and I said to my mom, I don't want to come back. Right. Um, and then my mom used to take me with my sisters to ballet class and one day I got up and I started doing these crazy turns and the, my mom, my mother was like it's amazing that he could do this with only seeing it mm-hmm. and my, the teacher said I haven't taught this step yet so um, that's how I actually wow. started dancing. Wow yeah. and then the rest of course is, is, it's is where history. It is, yeah. <laughs> and David as I mentioned and I've interviewed you before you were three years old when you started playing violin. Yes uh, I, I kind of led this typical Asian immigrant child um, uh, path, and that is my parents came to this country and uh, with vi- not a penny to their name and then starting to get their education here and then became pregnant and then, okay, we're going to make our child a violinist. And there are a lot of stories like that, actually, and Tiger, a lot of Tiger moms out there, and um, in just in the Philadelphia Orchestra, the person I sit with, Juliet Kang, I mean, she's from Edmonton, and child of immigrant of Korean immigrants and you know so yeah. uh, it's uh, it's not an unfamiliar journey that all of us have to take you've also talked about and I, I think it, it's appropriate for our conversation here about um, sort of realizing I am not going to be one of those solo you know make a solo career as a violinist was that a difficult realization for you at the time no I wish I had made that realization earlier than I did instead of in my 30s I wish I had been a little bit more realistic about my own gifts Uh, and um, so I'm uh, I'm just so grateful now that I just can't believe we're sitting here talking about 24 25 years in the orchestra but apart from being a a father and a Mm -hmm. husband it's been the greatest privilege of my life Wow. And for you, Jennifer, were you a theater kid? I was not. I I tried, I think I tried everything. I took one ballet class. I was not the person who could do the turns. They kept saying, get off the ground, get off the ground. <laughs> and uh, I played piano, I played flute, I played the oboe, and I just, my brain and my heart were never in sync with my fingers. And when I first started doing theater, I think I you know tried out for something in middle school, I was like, oh, 
my brain and my heart and my fingers all know exactly what to do together. Mm. So it was, and I didn't come to comedic theater until later. I took myself far too seriously. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yes, <laughs> Do you remember what that first performance was when all those pieces, pieces came together for you? I think you? I was the littlest of the three Billy Goats gruff. I think that was <laughs> the... Uh, I think it's amazing <laughs> how we, we find our paths, yeah. or, or actually our paths finds yes, us, because right. I always, like I say, I wanted to play a, an instrument or even for me now to remember lines it's mm-hmm. it's practically impossible I mean when I have to do a speech and I have to remember lines mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like I, I admire you so much because <laughs> um, I think that it's, it's incredible how just it's meant to be and, mm-hmm. and it just happens that way yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, another very short break, and we'll get back to our conversation, talking with Angel Correa, Artistic Director of Philadelphia Ballet, with Jennifer Childs, uh, Co-Founder, Artistic Director of 1812 Productions, and David Kim, Violinist and Concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. We have been talking about practicing and performing and cell phones going off during performances. And uh, after this very short break, we're going to play a little clip of uh, Jennifer Childs and her alter ego, Patsy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscoane, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, a conversation about performance, practice, laughter, creativity, applause, listening, watching, and the performer-audience relationship. Uh, and Jennifer Childs has really made a name for herself here in Philadelphia with this character that she created, uh, a, a woman named Patsy. Uh, let me play this video. It's actually a WHYY video that goes back to 2011, where Patsy, and I'm using quotations here, is interviewing Jennifer Childs about what it means to be a creative connector. Let's give it a listen. All right. First question, what the hell is a creative connector? Well, the term comes from a book called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And um, he says in the book that... Oh, wait a second. Was he in that movie, A Clockwork Orge? No, that, that was Malcolm McDowell. Oh, yeah, the same guy who was in The Planet of the Apes. No, that's Roddy McDowell. I thought he wrote that Irish movie, The Commitments. That's Roddy Doyle. You mean the wrestler who wears a kilt and fights Hulk Hogan? That's Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I'm a little lost myself. <laughs> but, but truthfully, Patsy, a creative connector is someone who does what you just did. Takes seemingly disparate people, ideas, and organizations and makes connections okay. between them. So, for instance, my Tommy, God bless him, he used to go to that Holy Berry Mother of God school. And there was one day when they and on and on and on she goes. So Jennifer, what is what is your relationship, your connection to this character you've created, Patsy? Well, I will often say that she is kind of my clown, um, and uh, you know we sometimes think of clowns as you know not party clowns, but the clown that you are with an audience. And through Patsy, I am able to say things that I would never be able to say myself. Uh, She gives me license and the ability to, you know, 
not call somebody names, but to call somebody out in ways that polite Midwestern Jen would never go like, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it is, and because she, uh, Patsy was developed as a character for our political humor show, answering questions about politics from her stoop, it also gave me the ability to talk about politics in a, um, and express my own views about them in a way that uh, doesn't that doesn't feel um, so didactic. Yeah, or exactly. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. I wonder. I mean, in certain ways, in ballet, you're creating characters. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean they're created for us, but in, yes. in, in in some cases, it's your point of view. Sometimes, you know, if you're playing pre- Prince Siegfried in Swan Lake, mm-hmm. um, although you have all the the different uh, steps and and cues and movements with the arms you can always create your own your own idea mm-hmm. your own interpretation of what it would be um, it, it becomes a little bit more um, fun when when it, there's a new role created on you or, or th- there's a new uh, choreography created on you more modern because then you're the vehicle of the choreographer mm-hmm. to express what they're trying to say to the audience but um, yeah no there's a lot of yeah. personal um, a lot of you in, in those performances. And you're a choreographer now, so you're creating pieces for your dancers? I am. I mean, I, it's more of a stager, I would say. I mean, these, these are ballets that they've been created many, many years ago, and then um, I just take, because I was privileged to dance with many different companies around the world and do these ballets in many different uh, versions of it. So um, I take the best of all of them and I, I create a, a, our own performances. Oh, and nice. I think today with the attention spam, you have to be more dynamic in the, the kind of performances that you put on stage. Some of these ballets, they were four or five hours long when they were created in Russia, and, you know, 1910. Um, but now um, you have to shorten them, make them more um, dynamic and people people's attention is not going to be that long. Yeah. I was thinking, David, especially with the orchestra, people go because they want to hear Beethoven's Fifth or, you know, the sort of oldies but goodies. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know the orchestra and other orchestras also want to introduce people to new composers, but sort of finding that that balance so that you can hold them to something that they maybe don't understand or have never heard before. Absolutely. And... uh Many times people walk away and I speak to them, our audience, and they're delighted. Uh, and they feel like as if they went to the barns and saw a painting that they never thought they would enjoy from an era that they didn't enjoy or an artist. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a it's, a, it's a part of performance that we have to risk. We have to, we just cannot go back to the old war horses week yeah. after week, season after season. Decade after decade, we we must keep the art form alive and fresh. And it's and the future, really. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the future, future. Yeah. yeah. I mean, David, because you've been with the orchestra so long, but you feel like that the audience is antsy? I mean, that you, you have to work hard to keep people's attention? Not really, Marty. I find that uh, people kind of know what they're getting into. They're coming to – they're paying – a pretty penny yeah. to buy a ticket and sit in this beautiful concert hall and see. They know they're seeing one of the great cultural institutions of the world uh, over the last century, and they are seeing the most incredible soloists, incredible conductors, uh, the most wonderful repertoire. They trust the orchestra to come up with some stuff, something they may not know. And uh, they come in with open hearts and uh, just that's why it is such a success. People yeah. are 
Because it goes both ways. Absolutely. Right? And Jen, you, you create, you know, mm-hmm. brand new works all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Um, and it is it is risky, and it's I think a part of what, especially now post pandemic, it's kind of an odd time in kind of trying to coax people to come away from Netflix and come back out into the into the theater. And I find right now that people are a little, are a little uh, less willing to take a risk on something new. They want to hear, let's like, oh, this is a title I know, and so. It's going to be a process over the next couple of years to kind of reintroduce and keep those new voices at the forefront of what we're doing. Yeah, a challenge. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about mistakes. I mean, you know, I'm assuming it's happened in all productions, and and uh, I'm looking at you on Hell. Um, does the audience know, especially with a you know with Philadelphia Ballet? Uh oh, someone made a mistake. They never make mistakes. But, no, I'm <laughs> but um, neither I think, do I. <laughs> yeah, it, it, with classical ballet, I, I'm sure that with classical music, it's uh, it's really hard to um, cover a mistake. I mean, if if a dancer falls on the floor, um, or if uh, there is something that goes wrong, it's very easy to see. Um, with modern, with a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, neoclassical ballet, then you know, if you fall on the floor, that you can roll and pretend that it's part of the choreography. <laughs> but uh, with classical ballet, it's very hard to to cover yeah. it. Um, that's why it, it needs to be when he's done really, really well. Classical, classical ballet, same as music or theater. Um, it's it, it's it, it makes a huge impact because yeah. it, it it's incredibly um, you know it's it's something that has been done for many years and and is done by many di- different people really really well. So when someone does it really really well, it's uh, you know it's something to definitely admire. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How about for you, David? I mean, you've got a large orchestra. Mistakes are made. Oh, absolutely. And covered up, or or just sort of buried in the sound. Well, sometimes it's really obvious. Uh, you know, if you have a toot, like in a quiet moment, <laughs> somebody comes in early or late. <clears throat> but um, I think that's part of the beauty of performance and seeing uh, maybe somebody's face get kind of red and you know a little embarrassed. But I think that's all part of it. We're all human, yeah. and I think that's the beauty of live performances. You know, you're. Almost hoping for once in a while that moment when you oh my god don't gosh. be too perfect right yeah absolutely yeah. how about for you Jen well, you talked about sort of all of a sudden you, yes you couldn't blanking. remember the words but I do think that the the one difference uh, especially with comedy is I always say there is it's there are no mistakes just comic opportunities and we're not dealing with the kind of we are dealing with the math of with comic math but certainly not putting dancers in danger or, you know, hearing an, an odd note. Um, I often find that people do enjoy it when something goes wrong, audience members, because it makes it feel like this is a version of the show that nobody else will ever see. This is the version that was just for them. Mm-hmm. And um, and how and, are they going to fix it, too? Yeah, I mean, as a member exactly. of the audience, which is, okay, now what do you do? Yeah, and and how do you, how do you cover, how do you get over it? And sometimes it's obvious, and I think... Uh, when it's obvious, sometimes people really yeah. get a charge out of that. <laughs> Just don't want it to happen too often, no, right? No, right? no. Do you read reviews on Hill? 
Um, and I do you used care? To, I used to, not anymore. I mean, today with social media and with all these different pat- platforms that people can actually share, you know, how a show went, I think that... Um, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about critics, but I think that there, that is a great platform for people to share their their thoughts and their views of the of the show. So um, I try not to, because if you if you believe the good ones, you have to believe the bad ones as well. Mm, so yeah. Um, yeah, I try to avoid seeing them. Yeah, I'm assuming you're. I'm assuming you're all tough critics of yourself, of your own work. Yeah, I think that you're the, the biggest critic, and not for the positive. So yeah. I think that uh, when when we see a show, we always aim for better and and. Um, you know, I think that's yeah. part of your your work ethic. Yeah. And for you, David, do you read what reviewers say about the orchestra or about your performance? I don't. I don't. Um, as Angel said, uh, it's kind of there's so much variation within critiquing and different publications. Uh, so I just choose not to because I find once in a while I find it's slightly hurtful. Mm-hmm. Like if they say, if the critic maybe says something a little unkind or a little bit insensitive about one of my colleagues, I just take take offense to it. And so I just choose to let them all kind of pass into the ether. And, um, you know, our audience speaks with their feet. They come out. If they want to hear it, they'll come out. Yeah. And that's all I need. We just want an audience and enthusiastic one at that. I don't need the uh, approval of any journalist or anybody else. How about for you, Jen? As a producer, I will occasionally read them just so I know kind of like why is it selling, why is it not selling. Uh, as an as a performer, as a writer, director, not at all. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's harmful. I had a friend who said, you know, it takes me three days to get over a bad review. It takes me three weeks to get over a good one because I'm on stage and I'm in my head and I'm thinking, is this the part where I sparkle like, you know, where I'm so dynamic you can't take your eyes off me? Is this, you know, and so better just to leave it out. I mean, it sounds like it creates a kind of self-consciousness, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. Which you want to kind of leave Yeah, leave, leave out. Yep. And I agree. Our audience speaks with their laughter and with their presence. And that's that's what counts. Do you have this, um, a moment, a special time, Jen, when, you know, maybe before a, a, a show is about to start? I mean, is there a time in the theater that, that is special to you? Yeah, I think uh, that moment right before you go on stage for the first time is such a is such a powerful and pregnant moment. And it's all the things of your your day that you're trying to leave behind and thinking about who are the people out there and, oh, is my mom there, you know, or are there is there nobody there, you know. Um, that that moment is always, I still get butterflies no matter how many times I do it. Are there certain things you'll do, certain rituals you have yes. on, on, a, on the opening night, let's okay. say? A uh, lot of breathing exercises. And dep- a lot of it depends on the show. Sometimes I need to be really amped up and I need to do a lot of, uh, you know, high energy um, jumping up and down. And other times I need to be really quiet and uh, and really focused. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the work. And and ritual, I, I sometimes think of ritual and, and sacrament mm-hmm. in the same yeah. sentence, the idea of you do something because it's meaningful. Yeah. And it connects you. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in, uh, I'm a pastor's daughter, so that idea of ritual and that idea of sacrament, communion, all of those things I find very present in the work, in the work that I do. And David, have, how do you prepare 
Let's say you're doing a solo for the orchestra. Well, I'm finding a lot of similarities between the three of us here. <laughs> um, it is very much content-driven. Sometimes we're playing a piece that is very kind of just familiar and almost I know the entire symphony by I can play nearly like a 40 minute symphony by memory I know it so well but then if it's a very exposed piece with with lots of concertmaster solos then maybe that requires a different kind of preparation but like Jen I find that that those moments right before walking on stage when they lower the lights in the wings and there's just a few staff people there and there's a TV screen backstage mounted where you can see the audience and the stage and that special moment is very um, it's a it's a treat for me because I usually sidle up to whoever the conductor is or the soloist and say hey Yannick or Yo-Yo where where are you going next week you know or Mm -hmm. do you have a special stretching regiment that you do and then I mean they're always so gracious and uh, kind and generous with their time and um, attention. Do you also take big breaths? Um, I try. I'm, I'm a very quick person. I speak fast. I think fast. I talk fast. You know all that stuff. So I, knowing that about myself, I try to slow everything down. I literally try to drive slower from the suburbs into the hall, and I try to chew my dinner slower. I mean, I try really to slow myself down because if I let myself go at the pace that I'm created at, it's too fast. Hmm. I just know it. How about for you, Angel? Well, I actually drive the costume department crazy and the the stage (laughs) crew crazy because I go around uh, making sure that all the props are right, that all the costumes are right. I I wait in the front of the, like right behind the curtain. to see all the dancers coming on stage right before the show and to make sure that all their their costumes and their headpieces and their makeup everything is right because i think it's really important that that you pay attention to all those little little details it makes a big difference it makes a big difference to the audience and it makes a big difference to the dancers that the artistic director cares about that um and then um yeah the the scenery is it's right and and once i see that everything is in place then i can actually go backstage i mean back to the audience and and pace and and try to (laughs) yeah try to enjoy the show (laughs) well on that note it's been such a pleasure all three of you joining us here in our philadelphia studio so thank you so much for Joining us today on The Connection. Thank you. Thanks, Marty. Pleasure. And again, our guests have been Angel Correa, Artistic Director of Philadelphia Ballet. Uh, Their production of Coppelia, choreographed by our guests, runs uh, this weekend at the Academy of Music. Jennifer Childs is co-founder, Artistic Director of 1812 Productions, and their latest production, The Play That Goes Wrong, runs through May 21st at Plays and Players. And uh, David Kim is a violinist concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And their next concert is at The Man on the 18th and 19th uh, with two programs conducted uh, conducted by director uh, Yannick Nézé-Séguin. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of the show. Debbie Builder is a senior producer. Paige Murray-Bessler is the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>